be seated. Let's join together now in our time of worship by taking our copy of God's Word, and we will turn together back to the book of Acts, and our passage for this morning and for this week is Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. So Acts 7, 1 through 53. We have been a few weeks away from our, our study of Acts because of summer schedule and, and, and different folks coming in. So we are coming back to this morning, about three or four weeks away, and we're coming back to looking at the longest sermon, the longest discourse in this book, and it's Stephen's speech. And as you have, if you were here last Sunday and on a church email and our one call, hopefully you've taken some time to read through this already. It's, it's long. We're going to read through all of it. Um, it's long. It's, it's, it's dense. Um, but it's good. Of course, it's good because it's God's word. But there, there's a, a lot of, of good things in here we want to try to pick up on this morning. So we will, we will read through the entire passage. Now I encourage you to read along with me. Uh, let me pray for our time together in this word. Father, we do come to a, a passage that we may be somewhat vaguely familiar with, as we are maybe vaguely familiar with the, the story of Stephen. Uh, but Lord, you don't call us to be vaguely familiar with your word. You call it to be a a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, the bread by which we feast upon the word that sanctifies us. You call us to be be very uh, involved with your word, very intimate with it, uh, to know it, because it is your word. And so, Lord, as we spend time together now in your word, bless us with the intimacy of the Spirit. Uh, that knowledge of Jesus Christ and that conviction of the great love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit leading us to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ through our faith and through our obedience. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 7, we will read through the, the whole speech and since it is lengthy, we will, you will stay seated. I will stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read now together. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, uh, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave him and inflict him for 400 years. But I will judge the nation, nation that they serve, said God. And after, they shall come out, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. In great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, 
Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. And he, said, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sands of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our, way, with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in, the, in his father's house and then when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, they came into his heart to visit his brothers and children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong? Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and now I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made your ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for his Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch the star of your good of your God Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor inside of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, 
and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Now let's take a breath and drink a water. That was a long reading, wasn't it? It took almost eight minutes to read the passage. We had to be thinking, eight minutes to read a passage, and we had the back-to-school bash in just a few hours. So we may be thinking, there isn't much more to say here than what Stephen has already said. But what we find here this morning is what we would call pure, undistilled, 100% proof biblical preaching. Stephen preaches the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. It's twice as long as Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And hopefully as you read through this week and as you read this morning heard it, you, you see it's a thoroughly scriptural sermon. It is chock full with Bible passages and biblical illustrations. It's like he sat down with Microsoft Word and a Bible app, and he just kind of cut and paste from different stories of the Old Testament. Because what Stephen is doing here is he's given a synopsis of the Old Testament. He's focusing really on the, on the story of the patriarchs. And he's doing this in the context of charges. He has been charged by the religious leaders with blasphemy and defaming God and his temple. And those are serious charges. And so we find Stephen standing in front of religious leaders of Sanhedrin, and he's answering those charges with those sermons. And that's a bold response, isn't it? Very straightforward, no beating around the bush. And the last, and the last part, how he, how, he, how he talks to them, how he refers to them, is very bold. And we like that boldness, don't we? But we also have to remind it, it's a gracious response. Because Luke has described Stephen as being full of faith and the Holy Spirit and full of grace. Stephen isn't being a jerk. Stephen isn't being a know-it-all. Stephen is being boldly gracious, boldly gracious and graciously bold as he stands in front of these baseless and falseless charges. Think how much the world around us would benefit from this same bold graciousness from God's people. I think we all agree, we live in a crazy, depraved, spiraling, out of control world. And every day it just seems to get worse. What it desperately needs is more bold graciousness from us. A willingness for us to love our families and our neighbors enough to take a biblical stand, but we do it easy, or we do it graciously. Here's what I have found. I have found it's easy to be a theological jerk. I know a lot of theological jerks. I could be one as well. And it's easy to be one. To use the Bible and your doctrine as a baseball bat to beat people to a pulp. You know it's hard to be? Theologically gracious and loving. To love someone enough to take them to God's word. To show them the good news of Jesus Christ. 
It's one thing to be convinced you're right. It's another thing to love someone else, someone else enough to do all that you can to call them to the truth. And that's what we find Stephen doing here. It's like the famous quote says, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. You know what Stephen is doing here? Here's the bread. And what are you going to do with it? The Sanhedrin are upset with Stephen. They're upset that he's faithful. They're upset that he's faithful in preaching the gospel. They're upset that he's faithful in doing gospel ministry. So they do what they are good at. They lie. And they make up these charges. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy his place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's a flat out lie. Put yourself in Stephen's place. If somebody was, was making these lies against you, making these charges, these charges of blasphemy against you, what would be your response? I can tell you, my response would be to, to defend myself. But that's not what Stephen does here. He, he doesn't say, no, 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 no. I did not say that, you bunch of liars. All of you have your pants on fire because you're a bunch of liars. Stephen doesn't defend himself, does he? He also doesn't concede. He doesn't hear them out and go, you know what? You guys, you've got a point. I might have been a little too much about Jesus. I, I, I might have been a little bit too much about Jesus in your space. You're right. I was being a holy roller. Let me give y'all your space and we'll kind of go on our own happy ways. Season doesn't, see, he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't concede. Why? Because he loves God. Because he is the fulfillment, or example, let me put that example, of short catechism question one. His chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We see Stephen being a faithful Christian. His loyalty isn't to comfort. His loyalty isn't to having the, the, the favor of man. His loyalty is to God first. Because you know what Stephen knows about himself? Stephen knows that he is a sinner. That he is a sinner saved by grace, a sinner redeemed by the Son of God, and therefore he takes seriously his faith. We see here from this sermon that Stephen is a reader of God's word, but like James says, he's not just a reader or just a reader or hearer of God's word, he's a doer of God's word. He is doing his best to walk on the path of righteousness. And when he stumbles, like every Christian will stumble, he will confess, he will repent, and he will get back to a serious faith. Because of this faith entrusted to him and taken seriously by him, Stephen is able to stand in front of these religious leaders, some of the most powerful men in Jerusalem, and to answer their charges, not by defending himself, not by conceding, but by being graciously bold and boldly gracious. And there's a lot here in the sermon. And we can spend a lot of time in this, but we're going to look at some overall themes and motives that will maybe help us better understand what, how Stephen is answering these charges. One of the serious charges is that he is speaking against this holy place, which is the temple. And we remember, and Solomon remind, or, sorry, Stephen reminds us here in his sermon, we remember that the temple was built by Solomon. 
And the piece de resistance, it's the only bit of French, that's French, right? That's the only bit of French I know. The piece de resistance was the Holy of Holies. Because who resided in the Holy of Holies? God's presence. So for religious leaders, this is a serious charge. You you brought blasphemy against the very place where God resides. So Stephen answers this charge by taking them on a tour, on a geographical tour, looking at all the places where God has dealt with his people. He begins in Mesopotamia, where Moses first is called by God from the burning bush. We're then taken to Haran by the Euphrates River. Then Stephen leads us to the promised land and then to, to Egypt in the days of Joseph. He, he then returns us to Shechem for, for Jacob's burial and back to Egypt. He retells how the, the Lord appeared to, to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the, the Ten Commandments. He, he recalls the exodus from Egypt through the Red Sea where God parted the Red Sea. He tells of the 40 years in the wilderness where God provided for his people. He even mentioned that the tabernacle and the temple. But did you notice what he said? That God does not dwell in a house made with hands. This is bold. For Stephen to stand in front of the Old Testament scholars and say, alright guys, follow along with me. We're going to go back to kindergarten and go back to Mesopotamia and move onward. He's doing this so he can reject their misguided idolatry of, the, uh, of, of those leaders that God was confined to only the Holy of Holies. That, that, that the Holy Holy is like this little jail cell from which God will only deal with his people. That he is somehow detained by human hands. And so we can imagine Stephen pulling out a map of the Middle East. And he starts pointing all these places. And he goes, hey, you super smart religious leaders and scholars. Remember these Bible stories? We've all heard these Bible stories you taught how God was here in Mesopotamia, how God was here at the burning bush, how God was here at the Red Sea, how God was here at Mount Sinai. you remember that? Here in these places, dealing with his people, do you remember that? God hasn't just dwelt in the temple. He has been with his people all along. Now even more so in the person of Jesus Christ, Because when Jesus was crucified, what happened to the Holy of Holies? The curtain that separated from the rest of the temple was torn in half from top to bottom, signifying what? God is with us. Emmanuel. God himself is with us. See, Stephen isn't wrong. It's the leader's who have blinded themselves to this truth. So he takes them on a tour. And then he gets into the rejection motif of his sermon. That God has chosen to use rejects for his glory and for the good of his people. God chose to use Joseph. We know the story of Joseph. Rejected by his brothers. Rejected to the point of, of, of them wanting to kill him. God chose to use Moses, even though he had been disowned by his own fellow Israelites. God has chosen prophets throughout the ages, but they have been rejected, persecuted, and killed by the Israelites. 
God chose those who announced the coming Messiah, such as John the Baptist. And what did Israelites do? They rejected him and killed him as well. And in this is that reminder that even a nation of Israel, who God said was the least of nations, chose them to be his people. And all of this leads up to one final choosing. That is the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who is betrayed and murdered by the very Sanhedrin who now sits in judgment over Stephen. Stephen has been accused of blaspheming the patriarch Moses. Yet history and his sermon shows repeatedly that God's people resisted the rescuers and rulers who God gave them. Joseph, Moses, the prophets, finally Jesus Christ. And again, whose murder of Stephen's audience is so complicit. So Stephen has pointed a map now he gathers them up and takes them into the vestibule of the temple. And all along the wall of the temple and in the vestibule are framed pictures of all the patriarchs. And Stephen goes down the list of them. He says, do you remember Moses? He rejected him. Remember Joseph? He rejected him. Do you remember these prophets? He rejected him. God chose each of these men and each of these men were rejected. Rejected by our people and by people just like you. And the great irony is this. Here they are in a temple. God's temple. And God's city. Standing in front of them is another man chosen by God. And what's getting ready to happen? He's getting ready ready to be rejected and killed by these people. I'd like to think that as Stephen was preaching, and maybe just maybe just for a few moments after he finished preaching, it was quiet as they processed what he said. And we're told they became enraged and hissed and yelled at him, but, but maybe there was a quiet there before the storm. I hope so, because what Stephen did is his graciously bold boldly gracious manner or boldly gracious sermon laid out a manner of laying out the evidence and blessings of God for them. The, the synopsis of this is Stephen looking and saying, Look, you, you have charged me with great charges. You have charged me with, 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 with charges that should lead to my death, of me speaking as this temple in the law of God. Yet, fathers and brothers, we are God's chosen people. And I am merely sharing the good news of the Messiah of us, of us as his chosen ones. So here is the evidence of God's blessing to us. Fathers and brothers, what have you done with these blessings? Do you hear how gracious that is? What have you done with the evidence and the blessings of God? He ends by calling them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hard in the ears. That sounds like fighting words, doesn't it? That's Old Testament language. Something the religious leaders would have been familiar with. It's an Old Testament way of saying, Father and brothers, you are not listening with your ears. You are not understanding with your heart and mind, and therefore you will not obey the Lord. Here's all the evidence of the Lord's blessing for you. And you have refused to listen. Why? Because they did not believe in the God of the Bible. 
They knew the Bible. They were studying the Bible. They taught the Bible. But they did not believe in the God of the Bible. They believed in the God that they made up. That's what led them to rejecting their Messiah. Even though all the evidence and blessing was there to show them that this Jesus Christ is their Messiah, they crucified him. Even though all the evidence was there that he was the one who was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies, they crucified him. Stephen, boldly gracious, graciously bold, lays out all the evidence of the blessings fulfilled in Jesus. And they can only come to the conclusion that they rejected and crucified him. But this morning, we are in some sense like the Sanhedrin. We all sit here with similar blessings of evidence from the Lord. God has made himself known to you. He's made himself known to you and me through his creation. But he's made himself known to you and me specifically in salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And in that he has made himself known to us through his word, through the ministry of his church, through the means of grace through which he blesses and grows his people. Many of us have the blessing of being raised in the church. So which means we have been exposed to gospel blessings and evidence many times over. God has been faithful to you. God has been faithful to me. God has been faithful to this church. And like the Sanhedrin, we each have to wrestle with this question this morning. What have you done with the blessings and evidence the Lord has provided for you? As you sit here this morning on August 13th, 2023, for however, however old you are, for however many years the Lord has blessed you with, what have you done with the blessings of evidence the Lord has provided for you? And that leads to the beggar question, has it led to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Being raised in and around the church, hearing the gospel, hearing all the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, all the blessings of the ministry of church, all the means of grace, has it led you to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Now I ask that question because of this. I'm afraid, and I'm getting more and more afraid, that there's a lot of people in the church in America who are in more of a partnership with Jesus Christ in a relationship. And here's what I mean. A lot of people just don't want to go to hell. We were given the option of heaven or hell. We're going to choose heaven. We don't want to go to hell. And I think for a lot of people in church, they see Jesus Christ as the one who will get them out of hell. Nothing about a personal relationship. Just what can you do for me? Jesus, what can you do for me? Get me out of hell? Great. Call me a Christian. I'll show up at church occasionally. And now I never have to worry about hell. Or maybe it's a partnership where we just want those good things from Jesus that make us look good in Winsboro. It looks good to go to church in Winsboro, doesn't it? And we don't want bad children. We want children with, with good morals. And maybe we want, to, we want to keep up the tradition of our family. Like Hank Jr. said, it's a family tradition. And our family tradition is we go to church because that's what good Winsboro people do. We just take from Jesus. But there's no relationship. There's no loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength so we can love others as, our, as, as we ought to. There's no following after Jesus. 
There's no calling him Lord. It's just a partnership. Salvation doesn't come from a partnership. Salvation comes from a relationship. Maybe you have found yourself in a relationship where you realize you were being used. That the person cared more about what you could do for them than they actually cared about you. We get away from those relationships, don't we? So why would we ever think that Jesus would bless us with salvation when we only want to take from him? We don't want to love him as we ought to. We don't want to live for him as we ought to. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to have him as our Lord and Savior. What have you done with the blessings and evidence the Lord has provided for you? Has it led to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I said this morning in Sunday school, I think one of the most frightening propositions we all have to deal with is this. One day we're going to have to stand in front of the Lord and answer for our lives. One day we're each going to have to answer to the Lord what we did with all the blessings and evidence he has provided to us. Romans 14.10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I want you to think about this. What will be your answer on that day? That day you stand before the judgment seat. That day where you have to receive what is due for what you have done in your body, whether good or evil. What will you answer on that day? When the Lord lays out all the gospel blessings and evidence he's provided for you, what will you say to him? Yes, God, I see and I understand. But God, you have to understand, there are other things that were more important to me. I had other priorities, God. You must understand that loving you and following you absolutely was important to me until other things came up. And when those other things came up, that's a priority. But Lord, I trust you understand. Do you understand what that's called? It's called a partnership. Not a relationship. And we're told in the gospel what Jesus says to people like that. Be away from me. Get away from me. I never knew you. What will you answer to the Lord on a day? Parents. Grandparents. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're not ours. They've never been ours. They're a blessing from the Lord. How are we raising them in the Lord? Are we going to say, yes, Lord, I know they're a blessing. I know I've raised them in and for you, but you know, there are sports. There, there are vacations. There, there were friends. There, there are other things they'd rather be involved with. And you know how, how hard it is to say no to kids. I just want them to be happy. So Lord, their happiness was more important than loving you and following you. I, I want them to love you and follow you, but, but happiness. How will we answer? This morning, we had the blessing of sitting underneath Stephen's gracious and bold call for us to examine what we are doing with the blessings and evidence of the Lord. Unlike the Sanhedrin, may we hear his call. May we respond in faith to the one who loves us so much that he lived for us, he died for us, he calls us to be like his. May our lives follow out the example of Stephen.
a life of such faithfulness that Jesus would dare stand for us as we will see in our next passage. May we hear the blessings and evidence and may we respond in faith. Pray with me.